Uh, the start of the week and plenty happening on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Yeah, I would drink more at home because I have it with me. Like, I wouldn't buy eight pints because I'd be like, I don't, I can't afford eight pints in the pub, but I can afford eight cans at home. Chips with ice cream, Holly? Yeah, this was actually something that um, a head chef I used to work with used to do, like a lot. And, you know, people didn't bat an eyelid. You know, everyone was very, like, accepting of this practice. And I was just like, what? Mm. Her face was on point with a tango face, but her feet were kind of messy. But do you know what? She's trying so hard and I love her. Yeah. She's so cute. I love her. Now, tango face doesn't refer to fake tan, does it? It's, it's, <laughs> 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 and we'll start with the live line. Stephanie called Joe in the afternoon to talk about living with OCD. That's obsessive compulsive disorder and spreading awareness of the signs and the help available for those who suffer with OCD. The HSE website, as you probably know, at this stage after the last eight weeks of uh, people being uh, unwell in various different states, some very, very serious. We've heard about A&E, but the HSE website's very, very good. The VHI website is very, very good. And indeed, when our first caller contacted us today, Stephanie, um, and there's a story behind it as well, because she did contact us before, I looked up immediately obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is what uh, Stephanie was enduring. And the description in the HS, on the HSE website is very clear. The pattern of OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, has four main steps. One, obsession. An unwanted and distressing thought, image or urge repeatedly enters your mind. Two, anxiety. The obsession provokes a feeling of intense anxiety or distress. Three, compulsion. Repetitive behaviours or mental acts that you feel driven to perform. These can be a response to the obsessive thought pattern. And then four, temporary relief. The compulsive behaviour relieves the anxiety for a short while. But the obsession and anxiety soon return and the cycle begins again. Stephanie, good afternoon. Hi, Joe. What do you, do you, do you identify with any or uh, all of those four points? I identify with all of them. Um, I started getting very bad OCD a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, the temporary relief is something that I can really, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can relate to because... Uh, you get your anxiety. The anxiety gives you the. If you do the compulsion, it gives you temporary relief. But that only gives you temporary relief for about ten minutes, and then you have to do it again and again and again. Um, yeah, but I just want people to know that it will get better, no matter how okay, bad it brilliant, is. Brilliant. It does get better. And Stephanie, do you know how how it began for you? Well, back? It, it began as um, it's a trauma. It's stuff that happened in your life. It, that's what happened for me. Um, I lost my nana in 2010. Okay. Um, then I started developing depression and anxiety, but I was able to control it. Um, and then about six years ago, another trauma happened in my life and I couldn't control it. I started washing my hands. I started going to the sink. I started, mm. uh, I started isolating myself from my family. Um, and that's what happened for me. But it... OCD, it, there's, it, it happens differently for different people, but for me, it was a trauma that happened in my life. And so it's a very clear description. So when you felt this anxiety coming on, the way you distracted, <coughs> excuse me, the way you distracted from the anxiety was to go to the sink. That's exactly it, yeah. Um, I used to go, if anything happened, I was like, right, I'm going to the sink. Um, and it relaxed me. 
and it eased me. And that's like, that's what it says with temporary relief. It did give me relief, but it didn't give me uh, relief for a long time. It gave me relief for 10 minutes until the next yeah. thing happened. Um, and, again, did an, and, then, and Stephanie, did anyone say say to you, what are you doing? Washing, yeah. your, washing your hands all the time. Yeah, see, I kept it very quiet. Um, I as a, I was ashamed of my illness, my OCD. Um, I felt that uh, why have I have OCD and there's people outside there like they have bigger illnesses than, than me. Why am I complaining? But my mum and my sister did notice. Right, there's some, something that's happening because she's gone to the sink again. She's spinning. She could spend 15 minutes at the sink. Her hands are bleeding. My hands used to bleed. Like, I used to wow. wash them so much that they used to bleed. And to be honest, I wasn't... I didn't feel ever clean enough until they were bleeding because I said, right, now everything is off me. Whatever I thought was on me wow. is off me. Um, and then I used sanitised from head to toe. Uh, I used to go through bottles and bottles of sanitizer, um, and I didn't really care. I wasn't thinking of, oh, my skin is going to go bad. All, all I wanted to feel was clean. Um, and if it wasn't if the, the sanitizer wasn't stinging my cuts, it wasn't working. That was my motto. Wow. And was um, and, and was it a distraction from your anxiety? It was. It was actually kind of more of a stress-related illness, I think. I don't think it was anxiety. I think it was more stress. Okay. The stress symptoms that were going on in my life. Um, yeah, it was. I would, I would say it was completely stress-related. Now, I was so bad one stage, I couldn't leave my room. I think that was the time I sent you the email. Um, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't leave my room. I used video call. My mum and my dad went away for the first time in forever. Like, you know, and they went to a wedding and I couldn't leave my room. My mum had to give me a packed lunch before they left. Um, I had to video call my brothers and sisters yeah. inside in my room and they were at the next they were inside in the sitting room in the next room um, and then I realised I was like I can't live like this I, I knew I couldn't live like this I, I always knew I couldn't but I went to a few counsellors and now although they were very good now I can't complain about them but they were very good for my anxiety and my depression but they just weren't uh, I, they weren't stern enough for my OCD And Joe asked Stephanie about texting the programme two years ago I remember sending it because my dad listens to your show quite regularly mm-hmm. and he said, Steph, why don't you... He was always on to me, Steph, ringing a radio station, texting a radio station. Mm. But as I said, I was ashamed and I was afraid that people would know, like even the counsellors, even though I was like, they'll know that it's me. I didn't want my brothers and sisters to know that I was doing it. I, I actually told nobody I was doing it um, because I didn't want people to know it was me because, yeah. as I said, I was ashamed of my illness. No, I realised that was nothing to be ashamed of. That Absolutely. It's okay not to be okay, like, you know. I won't, um, I won't read out all of the email, but it's very, this part's been extraordinarily vivid. I sanitise, yeah. you've already, I sanitise from head to toe every night, my face, my hair, everything after spending an hour or so in the shower. I can't make my own food or drinks or even tea. I change my clothes five times a day and my PJs around four times before going to bed. If I don't have a shower before bed, I stay up all night long until the next morning when my anxiety eases to start again the next day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I went a couple of nights without going to bed at all at all. Um, I'd stay up 
on in my room on my computer or something like that um, until the next day then I'd have a shower again hoping that the anxiety might re- mm-hmm. might ease now it did but I still felt whatever happened the night before whatever I touched off of I still felt dirty um, and it's not even it's not even germs or anything like that it was more uh, feeling the feeling of feeling right and clean that kind of a way Um I couldn't say that it was, oh, I'm afraid that my family will get sick if I touch this or if I touch that. It wasn't. And for a long time, I couldn't figure out why I was feeling this way. Um, But then I figured out that it was the feeling of feeling right is what I wanted to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, my clothes, my mum, my poor mum, the washing machine was nonstop going. Um, Yeah, I could change my clothes five times a day. If I went out anywhere, just say if I had to go to a dentist appointment or a doctor's appointment, I'd have to come home and take a shower straight away and take a shower that night again. And how Um, how did your, you mentioned your mum there, how did your family cope and what did they say to you, Stephanie? um, Well, to be honest, my mum and my dad, they enabled me. um, So they helped me, you know, get through every day. Now, it was the wrong thing to do. We know that. But as I said, if I was a mother, mm. I should have done the exact same thing for my child. Um, you know, but it's actually, in hindsight, it's wrong. You should just not give in to the symptoms because if you don't give in to them, it will get better. But you just have to, it's a lot of work, but you just have to mm. not give in to them or don't do the compulsion. Um, and my mum and my dad enabled me because they helped me. Like if I asked ma'am, I was they like, were, oh, I have but, to... But they were doing their best. They were doing... Uh, oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, I, as I said, I'd have done the exact same thing, but we have just... Since we have figured out it's actually the wrong thing to do and that's the only reason anybody's suffering from OCD, I just want people to know that enabling is actually the wrong thing to do, even though you think you're doing right, to you know, that kind of way. Um, and my brothers and sisters, they they were great for me, but like, but they were... It, it was tough on them. Like, you know, there was a lot of fights in the house because it was it was very tough on them. Um, yeah. And they only wanted me to get better because I'm quite an outgoing person. Um, I'm a quite uh, bubbly person and I just completely changed. My personality completely changed. All I wanted to do was be alone. And I hate being alone. In my in Even in the house, if everybody has gone away, I hate being alone. But all I wanted to do was be alone because I didn't want to get dirty. Um, and if I used to go out into the kitchen, I used to have to make sure that the leads were all gone and they yeah. could be gone into the sitting room and I could quite easily stay outside in the kitchen on my own drinking tea. I couldn't I couldn't make the tea. My mum had to make the tea or my dad had to make the tea. Um, they used to go into the sitting room. I couldn't go into our own sitting room. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that I just couldn't do. And Stephanie spoke about the turning point for her. Uh, well, when I text in the radio station that time, um, I text in quite a few radio stations. But somebody texted in and said EMDR, and my mum automatically Googled it. I didn't tell her that mm. I was texting in the radio station, but she heard it. Um, and I was actually kind of delighted that she did hear it because then she automatically Googled it, as I said, and she got a counsellor um, in Limerick. And next thing... Okay. Uh, she she rang her up and we made an appointment. And when I went in there, all my counsellors have always been, oh, Seth, poor you, you know, like, you know, this will get better. Everything perfect. It was absolutely perfect for me and it's perfect for everybody else. But for me, somebody had to be direct with me and this 
lady, she said that she said something to me that day that I wasn't willing to put in the work, basically, and mm. that kind of sat with me, and I was like, I'm going to show her, Do you know, <laughs> um, and that was kind of it. Now we laugh cl- about that clicked for you. That clicked for me yes, because okay. I had to work for everything all my life. I had to work for everything, you know, and I had to even going through college. I had to work and work and work because uh, it was just me. I just had to always fight for stuff. And when she said that to me, it clicked in my head. And I'm like, no, I am able to do this and I am willing to put in the work, like, you know. Um, and I went home that day and I said to ma'am, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. I don't want mm. to go back to her. Um and then ma'am, ma'am begged me and she said, will you please go back? And I said, right. And the only reason why I went back was because I was like, I'm going to show her because when I came home that evening from her, I didn't sanitise. I stopped sanitising. I went for my shower. I went to bed that night. I didn't sanitise. Um, and I didn't sanitise. I haven't sanitised for a long, long time because I showed her wrong. Like, you know. And I said to her, uh, when I went back into her, I was like, I haven't sanitised since. I left here and she was delighted for me now we're great friends now um, but, and she has actually changed my life completely around but I had to put in the work and it is hard hard work but it is worth it in the end Well that's Stephanie on the live line with Joe. And on Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell on the rising price of the pint. The price of some pints will rise following news that Diageo is putting a 12 cent increase on its draft beer prices. After this rise, according to the CSO, the average cost of a pint of Guinness is likely to be 5.30 and a pint of lager jumps to 5.72. So is that too much and will it cause people to think twice before popping into the local for a pint? Brian O'Connell spent some time over the weekend in Cork City Centre for us talking to consumers and publicans. So Brian, the increase flagged at 12 cent, slightly to be a bit more though, isn't it? Yes, as you said, Diageo uh, signalled their intent to bring in this 12 cent price hike per pint from February 1st. When you add in VAT, it's probably likely to be about 15 cent plus some publicans are likely to add to that hike because of general rising business costs such as wages, uh, rates, energy bills and so on. So what you could be looking at is many pints of Guinness edging towards six euro per pint. We know they can be much higher in some places. And this uh, increase, which is in a couple of weeks time, it will impact on Diageo products such as Guinness, Carlsberg, Smittix. It comes on the back of Heineken Ireland, who increased their prices last November. That's all 17 cents added to the price of a pint. I suppose the question is, and you alluded to it there, is there a tipping point when the price of a pint becomes prohibitive? And also, are some publicans using these increases as an excuse to, to add extra uh, hikes onto the price of a pint, increase their revenue um, and to go beyond what the what the flagged increases well, that, are. That's what you wanted to find out in part anyway when you went out uh, into Cork City Centre. What did you hear? Well, I heard from two publicans as well as a number of customers on Friday and Sunday afternoon in the city centre. Many people were having a drink after work or were down visiting Cork for the weekend. So I began on Friday in a very traditional bar, the Castle Inn. The owner there is Michael O'Donovan. He's also chairperson of the Vintners Federation in Cork. And then I also spoke to Ernest Cantillon, who owns a number of city centre premises, including Sober Lane. 
what we traditionally do here is when we use our stock, when we place a new order at the new price, it's at that point that we increase the price. So tell me what it what it'll go from. Uh, at the moment, we're five thirty for a pint of Guinness, so I think it'll well, it's twelve cent plus fat. But when you take into account um, our rates this year are going to increase three and a half percent. The minimum wage went up on the first of January. Um, our energy increases, so we have to look at uh, I suppose putting a little bit more on it so that we can stay in business and survive. Really. So you could be in around five fifty. Uh, yeah, it'll probably be five fifty. This time last year, there was a price increase by the breweries as well in February, and we absorbed that price increase. We didn't pass it on but when it came to November's price increase and now again the ad show doing it in uh, the 1st of February we don't have a choice so in order to stay in business we we just have to pass on this price increase. What we usually do it's a little bit sneaky it's a bit like maybe what the ad show did to Heineken we'll wait a week uh, and we'll see what everybody else in town does nobody wants to be dearest so we'll see what everybody else does and try and pick a median there. But it won't be the 12 it'll be a few cent extra. It will be I, my, my guess is that it will be uh, around 20 cent. Funnily enough, this will decrease our margin. I, I, I think um, one factor depends on what price you're at. For example, I remember when five euros was kind of a threshold for the average consumer if you have five drinks on a night out and it's 10 cent dearer, it's 50 cent. I suppose we try and make the argument that it's up to the pub to pass on enough value and a good enough experience that that were worth the 50 cent. But um, um, it depends where you are. Some places will be closing in at the seven euro mark, some places for the six euro mark. For me, I'm confident we offer something different and I don't think there's many people go out and drink 20 pints anymore and I, I definitely don't think there's people who do it every day like they used to whereas now I think by the time people book a babysitter pay for a taxi uh, you know whatever else goes with it I, invariably food is a part of, of nights out cocktails are a part of nights out it's a very different way of socialising they may go out less often but I think that they will still go out and still enjoy themselves in a pub Well that's Ernest there and then Brian also spoke to some pub goers Some people made the point that drinking had really changed for them and maybe they might go in for one or two drinks now and they'd combine that with drinking at home before or after so they weren't really going to feel the increase too much Um, For some other people I spoke to it was making them think about whether going to a bar was worth it if prices kept increasing and in that gulf between what they could buy and consume from an off licence or supermarket is certainly widening Many said the threshold was that five euro mark and they felt that would be a tipping point but now as we head close to six it seems people really are prepared to pay for that bar experience as Ernest referenced there pay for the atmosphere and then someone remarked as well with more remote and at home working over the past two years they really wanted to get out of the house and they would pay six euro no problem to get out on a Friday evening but this was the reaction Claire some of the customers I met um, these were Guinness drinkers and they were talking about the increase that's coming uh, Guinness is 5.30 What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's expensive to be honest um, like, to be honest there's other, there's other bars around this like, when I get it quite cheaper but this is one of my locals I like it in here it is quite expensive I prefer going away I do drink at home myself be the weekend um, but I do like going out as well myself you know so I like the, kind of the social scene as well but I think the cost of living you know, I suppose it's gone way up. My rent is quite expensive and I suppose I have less disposable income than I would have had before. I was wondering that, will it get, like, or is it at that point where A, it might reduce the number of pints you buy in a pub or B, it might force you to kind of drink more at home? I probably would force me to drink at home if I went up anymore. What do you make the price? I don't know really how it all works. You know, you see inflation going up, but then not everybody's wages are going up. So how much are you paying, how much would you pay for the Guinness at home? In my local, it would probably be 4.90, I'd say. And how much are you paying for it here? Five thirty. Yeah. So you're from uh, you're from the west. Yeah. So it's a bit cheaper. A bit cheaper. Yeah, yeah. The publicans have to do what they have to do, like because the price of everything is going up. It's not just pints, like so. 
just the way it is, I suppose. If I'm having a drink, I would only ever be at a pub. I would never really drink at home. Like, I'd rather drink for the social aspect of it rather, rather than the actual drinking it itself, kind of, you know. So. Yeah. And coming to a city for the weekend now, you probably realise you're going to pay a little bit more. You weren't tempted to drink Murphy's while you're in Cork, huh? I yeah, sometimes I would sometimes all right, like but I heard this place is very good for the Guinness, like so I'll uh, I might drink Murphy's down the road, no no way, you never know. Hmm. <laughs> well whatever about Guinness versus Murphy's, do people mm. sort of accept that if you're going into a city centre you're going to probably pay more for the pint anyway? Well yeah, he's from the West and uh, as you said, you know, four ninety and he was paying five in, in his hometown and then he was paying five thirty in Cork City Centre, going up to probably five sixty in a couple of weeks and did accept that he was going to be paying more. But if you, I suppose if you're away for a weekend, ten or twenty cents more per pint is it going to make much of an impact? You're probably unlikely to want to sit in a hotel room drinking all weekend. So, I mean, he was happy enough to pay it. Uh, finally, I met two women, young women, sitting outside a bar in the city and they told me they're originally from Derry, but they're living in Cork. They just bought a pint each, Claire, and I began by asking them how much had they paid for them? I handed over 20 and I got seven back. For, for two, two pints. pints. Yeah. So what do you think of that? Well, up north, it's like 3.80 a pint, which is way cheaper. So that's where I go when I want to drink. <laughs> like we live here now and like even the price of everything is insane. When we go up north, it's like 20 paracetamol in the bag, stuff for your washing, like just household items are insanely cheaper up there. And, and do you think it will get to a point or is it getting near a point where it, it will make you consider not going to a bar? Yeah, I prefer drinking at home. I can buy eight cans. You can buy even like cheap stuff, four quid for four cans. like. Have we night to yourself? <laughs> you don't need to be out and about. Like, and it'll cause more people to be more reclusive than we already are. Like, not gathering and chatting to each other. We'll just be staying at home because it's cheaper to be there. Price hikes coming in about two weeks' time. There's going to be an extra maybe 30 cents put on the price of a pint. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, I can buy eight cans of what I'm drinking now for 15 quid, or I can have one for like seven quid. On the other side of it, when you're out drinking, you don't, like, I didn't know how much it costs, so you don't notice it. If you're out, that's it. So you notice it tomorrow when you yeah, go to the yeah. ATM. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you go out for a couple of pints and you come home and you're like, oh, i got to open my account. <laughs> so what do you get from the pub that you don't get at home? I don't know. It's like the social aspect of it. Like if I want to meet up with my friends, I'd rather go to the pub than bring them to my house. But then do the price increases, is it good in a way because it limits how much you drink? Or are you saying you'll probably drink more at home then? Yeah, I would drink more at home because I have it with me. Like, I wouldn't buy eight pints because I'd be like, I don't, I can't afford eight pints in the pub, but I can afford eight cans at home. Brian O'Connell's report for today with Claire Byrne. Well, it's the third Monday in January, which these days is also known as Blue Monday, the saddest day of the year. Ray Darcy was asking Cliff Arnall if it's real. Today is known as Blue Monday. Uh, it has been for quite some time and we, the media, are fixated, nearly obsessed with it. Uh, and that's how you know about it. But how did it come about? Who coined the phrase Blue Monday for the third Monday of January in every year? Well, the man responsible is on the line, Dr Cliff Arnold. Good afternoon, Cliff. Hi, Ray. How are things? Uh, re- really good, thank you. Oh, how good. are you doing? So you're in good form on this Blue Monday. <laughs> Will you tell us the story of how you coined the phrase and why you coined the phrase Blue Monday? Yeah, I I was asked in 2005 what I thought uh, would be the most depressing day of the year. And as a psychologist, I was really intrigued by that. Um, And I basically uh, put together the information from the thousands of people I'd worked with, uh, whether they were substance use addicts, 
people who'd been depressed or anxious, but also uh, people who were, were positive as well, and basically came out as today being the best fit for all of the factors that people were, were talking about. And then um, Blue Monday um, was born in, in, in that. And I, had, I had no idea it was going to be anywhere near as big as it's, uh, it, it's been. But that, that's, the, that's the brief background. Okay, so it was 2005. Uh, and and you, you were being paid by a travel company. And they wanted to find yes. out when people were more, most likely to book a holiday. Was that it? Yes, that, 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 that's right. So the, the, two, the two were um, put together. So what I, I thought was the most depressing day and, mm. and therefore that day would be a good day to book a holiday, to uh-huh. basically look ahead and, and think of positive things. So to counteract the, the, the Blue Monday thing. Uh, but you, you had a formula and I'm, I'm just looking at the various uh, elements of it. So you, you included weather, uh, debt as in financial debt, um, which mm. a lot of people would be uh, experiencing this time of the year after overspending at Christmas time. Uh, the time since mm. Christmas. Um, Q, time since failing our New Year's resolutions. Ah, I see, because you're halfway through January and uh, a week ago you might have stopped uh, running every day or uh, uh, started eating sugar again or whatever. And then M is for mm. low motivational levels and NA, low uh, motivational levels as well. They're the same, are they? What's NA then? N, uh, 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 NA is the is actually the need to take action. Oh, the need so to take action, spite, right. okay. Yeah, so in, in spite of uh, being, you know, low motivation, mm. people know, certainly, certainly the people I, I work with, you know, they go, I, I know I need to make some, some changes, even though I don't feel great right now. I, I want to be taking some constructive steps. Yeah. And I remember when it came out in 2005 because I was on a daily radio programme and we were very excited. There was, it was, it was, there was a time there in the noughties and, and you might remember it better than I do, Cliff, where, where there was a lot of formulas coming out of uh, the UK, out of universities and psychologists and that was the thing at the time, wasn't it? Well, I, I, um, I, I'm aware of one that right. came out before the one I, I did, but then... Um, then it definitely became a popular. I think. Yeah. I think okay, when, yes, when people, yeah, yeah when people saw the, the the amazing response to Blue Monday, that it was a it was a good way of communicating a message. Mm. You see, I have a problem with it, and I think you have a problem with it as well, because it's it's sort of it's a self fulfilling prophecy, you know. Like people could have got up in good form this morning. Uh, it's a lovely fresh. January day, it's the blue skies here, and then they've been bombarded in the paper and radio, television, by Blue Monday. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? I, I, I do, but I, I would then uh, suggest what were people feeling in January 2004? And my, uh, the, <laughs> the, my, my, my strong inclination is that people were feeling down for the reasons that I've highlighted. Yeah. Um, Prior to that, and by the way, the the, the day in, in 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 my head as as a psychologist was always to use it as a springboard for making changes uh-huh. in the year that you're you're currently in. Cliff Arnell from the Ray Darcy Show. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Dancing with the Stars with Arthur Garolian. Garolian? Uh, the great uh, Arthur Gar- Arthur Garolian. I mean, did, did we all Garolian. get it? It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, Dancing with the Stars, Judge. Uh, one thing I noticed from you talking last night about it was that you danced with 
the dancers on this song on I the stage. did I did, actually I spent four years with Girls Aloud yeah. and I know this song like like I'm obsessed with this song Do you, does it when you hear that do you go oh I heard it so many times I hate it or no. do you go oh I remember that I remember I'm loving it because it brings back so many memories like I think I said last night to Brooke I said you just brought back so many yeah. memories to this song there's always something you know you always connect it to a song yeah. in life so that's that always that's going to be out in my heart yeah okay let's pause and pray to the corporate gods Dancing with the Stars on RTE Radio 1 sponsored by Muller Corner Mullerlicious and now we're allowed to speak uh, about Dancing with the Stars which of course we're back and we're back Woof. Uh, we have been uh, redeemed and Dancing with the Stars last night was I think it's a great old season this year already like we're week two but it's buzzing Absolutely agree with you. Do you know what? The past two weeks has been incredible. Mm. I said since beginning this year, compared to my first season, this year everybody has a rhythm. And in dancing, you have to have a rhythm. You can teach someone steps, but if you don't have a rhythm, it's kind of difficult. But it's been absolutely incredible. I don't know if I agree yeah, with you. Yeah, come like, on. No, but I, 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 I just Ryan, think come there's on. Some, because I'm somebody who cannot dance, yeah. which I'm the opposite of what you are. You're a capable, competent and talented dancer. I'm everything that that isn't. Thank you. Now, and yet as a punter on the couch, I'm not sure everyone can dance. Okay, I'm going to rephrase this. They have a rhythm, but not everybody can dance. Rhythm and dancing is two different things. So you have a rhythm to keep up with the music, but not for that you can dance. You, you gave, uh, even you. Oh, don't. I know where you're going even with this. Even you, don't. Johnny Kindpants, oh, uh, turned around last night and you, you, your voice dipped several octaves oh. as, you, as you sadly pronounced a, oh, you a four or oh, a three. We won't mention me. the people just yet, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to deliver such horrible. bad news? Oh. Feels horrible. Horrible. Do you know what? Because like you said, you know, they are non-dancers and they're working so hard week after week. They try to bring the best yeah, out of them. And me watching it and I have to do my job because I was thinking, I was like, if I go higher I will hate myself later on because <laughs> I won't live with myself but then at the same time when I was picking out that paddle oh it's yeah. a horrible feeling okay let's go through how, what happened to whom and uh, obviously it, it all kicked off with <laughs> with Brooke and Maurizio and that was the song they did that the girls was the song, love machine you know, my, like Brooke, I said she's a dance machine not love machine she's dance good machine. isn't she she's incredible yeah. I mean she's a pop star people were saying oh she's a pop star she can dance I was like no I work with lots of pop stars who got two left feet but she's a pop star who can incredibly dance. Yeah, so there's no 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 great surprise there. Two eights no. and a seven. So we move on to uh, Damon McGinty and Kylie Vincent, who also did quite well. They did dance uh, Jason Derulo. Jason, I love that song. Acapulco. Uh, Acapulco. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, of course... Uh, <laughs> but, but again, same. You think like people think, oh my God, Glee star, you know, in Glee, you yeah. think, dance, uh, you know, perform, act. But he got the moves. I just told him he needed to relax a little bit. A lot of work on his freestyle a little bit. Yeah, they, they, they got two sevens and a, and a six. Did very well. Not bad. Um, it, the relaxed thing keeps coming up with I know, some because of them. people think they have to be very tense to go stronger. No, you can relax. It's fine. You can be soft. The former state pathologist, uh, Mary Cassidy. Oh, I'm starting so to get used to it. Last week, my head was blown by the, <laughs> by the fact that she was there. Uh, last night, it was okay. Uh, it was uh, Ole Guapa. Uh, Stanley Black and his orchestra with the tune. She got a five, a six and a five. Uh, your thoughts? My thought, she was not bad, but her feet were kind of messy. Her face was on point with a tango face, but her feet were kind of messy. But do you know what? She's trying so hard and I love her. Yeah. She's so cute. 
I love her. Now, tango face doesn't refer to fake tan, does it? It's, it's, <laughs> 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 no, at all. Just I to that. Tango face is like intense, you know, looking into somebody's eyes. Or tango dancing. Tango face. dancing. Ah, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> I love we it. We need to establish the facts uh, here. Exactly, just to on. make sure. Thank yeah. you, Martha. <laughs> uh, we move on to Kevin McGarhan and Laura Nolan. They they repeat. I was there, yeah. the overtones um, version. The jive. Wish they had used Jackie Wilson's, by the way. I just say the original version of that okay, song. So but I didn't know on. that. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. I, I, I knew from overtones, but yeah, but okay. thanks for that. Uh, I mean, they're great. No, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, two, three sevens, the jive. Yeah. Again, Good. I was saying earlier, actually, as a comedian, I thought he was gonna come, have fun, give fifty percent, and go home. But he's actually giving hundred fifty percent, and he's he's taking it very seriously, and I'm really proud of him. Okay. It really shows that he's going really hard for it. He's yeah. doing well. And Ryan asked Arthur about contestant Stephanie Roach. Now we move on to the slightly difficult, thorny subject of Miss Stephanie Roach. Sip on the water. A lovely person um, who looks the, the part, no doubt about it. She's dancing with her Venus. And she got uh, uh, five from Lorraine. That's top points. Yeah. Four from Brian. And then the voice, went, the voice went low as you barely whispered. Four. Oh my God. Why? I'm dying inside. I'll tell you why. I think Stephanie got potential, but she just have to get out of her comfort zone. She's too soft. She need to act even more. She need to be animated. You know, in dancing, it's not just dance steps. It's acting. Dancing, it's acting. And I don't see that from her. Even the steps were too soft. Okay. She, she wasn't giving me anything. Now, how how much does Irvinas, can Irvinas do, her, her dancer? Or is it just, he's, he can only do the, the best He can he only has. do the best. He can push, push, push. But I think that needs to come from Stephanie. Okay. She needs to go. Like, you know, she's an amazing football player. So the way she kicks the ball, just kick the dance floor. All right, okay. That's how you should act, okay. actually. she bring that Get in. Get stronger, exactly. Oh, that was tough. I thought the points were Oh, my God. Tough, like, but you needed to be honest to yourself, I think. I had to. Yeah, you know yeah. what? I went back home and I was like, if I went higher, I would have not really... Like myself, no. Uh, but the story gets worse what? for, oh for a Derry girl, uh, Leah O'Rourke, who's dancing with John Nolan. And um, jeepers, uh, Lorraine gave her three. Brian oh gave her three. Again, oh your voice went down to the, oh. you plummeted the depths of, oh the, of the Atlantic Ocean to say four. Ryan, it's a horrible feeling when you're sitting there, you don't know what to do. You're like, I want to support you, but at the same time, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. I mean, her face was good. She smiled. The top part was great. But the bottom part was walking in the park, really. What does she need to do? She has she, a lot of work to do with these she's points. She's got a lot of work to do. I mean, she did the tree lift, which was very ambitious, which was great. But she needs to be a little bit softer. But she needs to work harder. She needs to go. I feel like it was a rehearsal I was watching. Okay, the next two dancers caught my attention oh. <laughs> very compelling performances <laughs> coming down the tracks uh, the, the Burn Bros uh, Shane and Karen now Sh Shane Burn. I, I tell you he's my surprise hit of, I, I, I find him very watchable yeah. Uh, yeah. very charming but do you know what it's not gimmicky it's not good. He no, actually does the steps. He can bounce he can bounce he can yeah. dance he can move he never missed a beat it's just there wasn't cha-cha-cha much of but them but the like scores were rotten four, five, three uh, is that because like I'm, I'm watching it going I really enjoyed that but you're looking at going that was terrible dancing yeah there wasn't a hardly like Lorraine said there was hardly any cha-cha-cha in it the, the, do you know the, what I mean it's just like fun you just roll your hands hey, okay. ha. it was just like a fun dance it wasn't your typical 
what you want to see. Sounds like the end of an Irish wedding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's and more I mean, like that. To quiet of them. Yes, exactly. You know exactly. I, no, but I loved it. It's entertaining. Don't forget, it's this show, it's entertainment. Arthur Garulian from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And what would you be talking about on a cold January morning than the joy of chips? Chips with stuff on them. Hold the ice cream. There was a recent piece in The Guardian that showed chips, lots and lots of chips with lots of different toppings. Cheese and jalapenos, chicken tikka. They're calling them loaded fries, but they're variations really on the spice bag. And Chef Holly Dalton (laughs) is here and has some ideas for her own uh, chips and what you can put on them. And do get in touch if you have any good ideas on this one. 51551, including, as I said, at the start of the programme chips with ice cream Holly yeah this was actually something that um, a head chef I used to work with used to do like a lot and you know people didn't bat an eyelid you know everyone was very like accepting of this practice and I was just like what mm. I mean I kind did of t- did you taste it no okay like I did but <laughs> it's just salty and sweet okay I'm there okay yeah. I get it pretzels you know pretzels and chocolate Maltesers and the popcorn I get it I'm on board but it's something about that it's potato you know, it's kind of like a bit of a mental block there. And ice cream. It's just yeah. not right, that is it? Doesn't doesn't seem right. So listen, let's get back to basics firstly. So are you going to the chipper for your chips or are you cooking them at home? For me, there's kind of like two schools of thought on this, right? I feel like Ireland, we're definitely like a nation of chip eaters and everybody pretty much has like their local chipper where the chips are good and they like, you know, they have their preferences. And I'm the kind of person where it it really depends on what it's for. Like I love, for example, steak and chips is like my go to. You like if I really want to treat myself, don't eat it often, but when I do, I always go to the chipper. So I'll time it so that like okay, the steak is resting now. I'm gonna run out, get the chips, and that's how it that's how it is. But the thing about chips from the chipper is they decrease in quality like dramatically, like as soon as you've taken the bag. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. You know, I don't, I wouldn't really be like loading them up after that. They're going to get soggy. You know yourself, like even once the bag is closed from like the time you get them home, they could be gone a little bit soggy. Because they're cooked in oil. Because they're cooked in oil. And I am not, okay, I am all about oil. I'm all about carbs. I'm not a big like health freak, nothing like that. However, okay, big caveat here. The air fryer has changed the way that I eat chips, make chips. I cannot get over this. It is like, it's magical. You can put in frozen chips in the air fryer and I'm talking about they go from frozen to crispy in 15 minutes. It's all I use an air fryer for in my house. Yeah. Weekend chips. It's amazing. They're absolutely incredible. And like, especially like, you know, people talk about like cost of living, all that kind of jazz. If you are like preheating an oven and it takes, my oven anyway, takes about, realistically, to get up to 220, it's taken about 20 minutes to get up there. Do you know what I mean? And as soon as you open it, you know it's gone down to 180. It's it's the, These are not professional ovens. These are not designed to like stay at high temperatures. Whereas the air fryer, there's no, there's no preheating. You put the chips in from frozen. Like I showed it to my parents when I got it and they were like, okay, this is like, this is sorcery. This is magic. <laughs> like this is not right. And those kind of chips are cooked dry like that. They're, mm. they're the best for toppings, are they? Absolutely. Like, so they come out of the air fryer like so incredibly crispy. And if you like, okay. Also, it's, it's it, you got to bear in mind that when you're topping things like this, this, like, you know, putting things on top of chips. There's kind of two ways of going about it. You can go the kind of like dry method, which is when you're using things like aromat, you know, uh, chicken powder, Old Bay, paprika. I use a lot of uh, Ackle Island smoked sea salt. That's like class. Or you can go the kind of saucier route. Now, if you're going the saucier route, 
you ca- it can't be too like liquidy. Liquidy is probably not a word, but you know what I mean. I tend to use kind of roux based things, you know, like cheese based things, things that are going to kind of gloopy like, stuff. Gloopy stuff. You want it to be gloopy. Like what are we? <laughs> like who are we getting here? We're not going for refined. It's chips at the end of the day. But one of my go tos is, and I know there's a lot of carbonara purists out there, and I am not a carbonara purist. Okay is like carbonara fries, which is when you get your bacon or, you know, I know it should be guanciale. I know that. Okay, I know that. Let's. I mean, when's the last time anyone bought guanciale? No, I don't even know what it is. Never. Anyway. Ne- like, it's what's supposed to be in carbonara. <laughs> but come on, I don't think I've ever even seen it. So you like fry off your bacon, then you remove your bacon. You've got your fat rendered out. That fat is the perfect base to make a roux-based sauce. So you make your roux, you add your milk, you add your parmesan, finish it off with an egg yolk, and then put that on top of your fries with a little bit of parmesan on top and obviously the bacon it, and plenty of cracked black pepper. It's out of this world. And because you have that kind of thick, roux, cheesy sauce, your fries don't really get soggy because they kind of like sit on top of the fries. You know what I mean? They're not like seeping into them. And today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, a serious conversation about the dangers posed by unfettered access to the internet for young adults. Secondary school teacher Owen Cleary was talking to Ryan about debunking online myths and misinformation. Really, what we, the part of the reason we wanted to talk to you was because uh, we've been um, in, in dispatches discussing Andrew Tate uh, recently, and he's yeah. currently um, in custody in a, in a Romanian uh, prison uh, for all sorts of uh, unsavoury uh, behaviour, allegedly. And more importantly for us in our conversation is the type of toxic masculinity, and that's not a phrase you, you throw around lightly, that he espouses, has become very popular in classrooms around not only the world, but in this in this country. Yes. I think that's really important to, to say from the get-go. And this is where you come in, because you were ahead of the curve. Uh, when we go back to 2017, you devised a course at your school um, Tell us about the course and why. Why did you devise it? Sure. So uh, we devised the course. Um, it was our first cohort. We were a new school. It was our first cohort of TY students. And I had just noticed in my English classes that um, there was a lot of uh, sexist and misogynistic chat going on um, between the guys and the girls. And it was leading to great debate in the English class. And I was using it to kind of form, uh, to teach argumentative language and persuasive language around. But uh, we were starting to develop our wellbeing programme for our senior cycle at the time in the school and I um, devised a program on gender studies whereby the students just got to sit for 80 minutes and discuss uh, what they assumed was expected of them because of their gender and what they'd been taught by the world was assumed of, uh, should uh, they assumed was expected of them because of their gender and we looked at um, how that uh, affected them in terms of their personality and behaviour, their pastimes, their careers, their clothing, their self-expression, their mental health, their body image, their role in relationships and then their role in sexual interactions. And I suppose when it came to their role in sexual interactions, they uh, made lists of what they assumed was expected of them. And then we read them out in the class and they were very explicit lists. Um, and I immediately realised, I mean, I wasn't entirely surprised, but I suppose I was surprised by how consistent all of their lists were, that everyone was saying the same thing. So I just said to them, uh, these lists are very explicit. Traditionally in Ireland, you know, your parents would be the people to teach you about sex. Is that who's teaching you? And they laughed at me. And I said, well, the only other people who are tasked with teaching you about sex is your teachers. And is that what is this what they're teaching you? And they laughed at me again. I said, well, well, who who is teaching you this stuff? Because you've all got the exact same list and you're all saying the same things. 
Um, and it comes up very quickly now in, in the programme. But at that stage, it, it took one very brave boy to raise his hand up and say, can I be honest, sir? And I said, of course you can. That's the whole point. And he said, it's porn. And at that moment, I felt every pair of eyes in the room looking at me to gauge what my reaction was going to be. And I said, well, OK, let's talk about porn. What's where are you accessing that? And, and how is it impacting you? And immediately the floodgates were open wow. and they were so excite, excited and enthusiastic. To and be relieved. Able, and relieved, hugely relieved that they were able to talk about it to each other. They yeah. didn't, they hadn't talked about it to each other before and that they, I suppose that they were able to check things with the... Uh, um, qualified adult in the room that could just call out and debunk certain myths that they were being exposed to. I mean, that is extraordinary. Brave student, brave teacher uh, and a, a complicit classroom. Uh, yes. All conspiring to allow for safe space 100%. and um, legitimate, fair and constructive conversation, debate and discussion. Yeah. Critical. If only we could replicate that in every classroom, in every school and every, around the country, but not easily done and very, very difficult terrain to navigate. So we'll get there in a moment. But okay. let me ask you first, if I may, about uh, the lists and the nature of... You've said, you've said it a couple of times already. You said that the, the similarity of the expectations. What, what, are we, what are you referring to there? Yeah, so I have a list here and it's just a list of all of the things that have come up. It's generalised because I know we're on radio and some of the things can't be said. But it's a generalised list just of the things that have come up in every group that I've, I've taught this programme to now in uh, the last five years. So for male students, their expectations are to chase the woman, to be dominant, to be aggressive. And this didn't always include these terms, but in the last three years has started to include things like choking, slapping, throwing her around, to be in control, to know what you want. Um, I have a list of very specific named sex acts, which I won't read out, um, some more degrading to women than others, and to be with as many uh, partners as possible. And then for female students, to be submissive and choking and slapping has come up here recently as well. Uh, I have another list of uh, specifically named sex acts uh, in varying degrees of uh, degradation to women, to have no pubic hair whatsoever, uh, to make pleasure noises, to be kinky, to do what he says and to do what he likes. That is, it's intense. Yeah. Um, is it surprising? Um, it's surprising how common it is amongst everybody who makes the list. These are in small groups of guys and girls in the but class. they're all saying the same they're thing. They're all saying the exact same and thing. And it's not only these lists, but they're, they're using the same specific language about the explicit content. And Ryan asked Owen about internet access and porn. There's a parallel universe for teachers and the students in the what there's the classroom yes. and then running parallel to that is the universe in their phones 100% and that's that's what we're dealing here with uh, and i think it's a good time to say that our uh, when i say the word porn on the radio yeah. all of the parents listening my generation's experience of porn is totally different to the current generation. I can ask you how old you are just to put it in context. I'm 38. Yeah, so it's yeah. totally different to the, the so, kids. So uh, the internet arrived in my life when I was 16 years of age mm -hmm. and didn't get a smartphone until I was in my late 20s. Um, and uh, I mean, the so when, I mean, when I was in secondary school, the internet made porn a secondary school problem. 100% it did and nobody spoke to us about it then and nobody taught, to, taught us about it then but smartphones unfortunately have made porn a primary school problem um, and and the students that I speak to uh, after this initial group that we uh, had we decided that we needed to 
figure out what the school community was experiencing. So we did an anonymous survey yeah. um, which asked them about their phone use and their exposure to porn among various other aspects of their um, well-being. And uh, they all, almost all said that they had been exposed to porn. Um, 36%, and this was five years ago, said that they'd been exposed to porn before they even got to secondary school. Uh, more what percent? Than, 36. Yeah. So over a third in primary school and that was five years ago. Um, more than half of the students reported actively using it and um, more than a quarter of our boys reported using it more than once a day. And that was from, is that the 2017 yes. uh, survey? Yeah. Well, you can only imagine uh, well, the uh, increase in statistics because of the proliferation, uh, the, the proliferation uh, of yeah. everything. So, it, so now uh, 97% of 13-year-olds own a smartphone. That's first years. And uh, a third of eight-year-olds in Ireland own a smartphone and 40% of nine-year-olds, according to the uh, cur- the most recent um, Growing Up in Ireland study, that the, that, sorry, the o- over half of nine-year-olds currently own a smartphone in Ireland. When, when do you, does the research suggest that children are accessing or seeing as pornographic soon, material? As soon as you've got, and I, I suppose, as soon as you've got a smartphone, it's not just about allowing your child unfettered access to the internet what we need to start thinking about it is in terms of allowing the internet unfettered access to your child no nine year old goes online uh, looking for porn and that is in all of the research but what is clear is as soon as they are online the internet bombards them with it I have a second year uh, last year I had a second year drama group and I don't bring up porn with uh, young people under the age of uh, 16 um, but I have a second year drama group and it came up uh, in that group from them and I just facilitated the conversation and asked, you know, where are you seeing it? And one of the girls said, I've had 11 direct messages this morning asking me for nude images. Good Lord. Through Instagram. That's extraordinary. Um, you know, we've talked about at the beginning of the show about the return, voluntary return to yes, flip phones. I, I, do you know, that was some of the greatest news I've heard Is in that right? ages. I, I thought was, so too. I was so happy. That they're, they're, they're volunteering, the younger people volunteering to take on a phone it, that doesn't have all that junk yeah. on it so they can enjoy an Gen, I mean, about, on Gen smartphones, Z, yeah. the, the, the feedback is if nobody had one, they'd be happier, but because everyone has one, they have to have one. What a wicked web and vicious circle that is. Yeah, it's tough for them. It's very, tough. Very tough. Um, the, what is Fortnite porn? I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, sorry so like two, I'm just not familiar with so, that. So uh, in 2012, um, there was a massive shift in porn. Uh, sorry, and I should say, as soon as I realised I was going to have to be teaching this stuff, I've, I've done an awful lot of research on porn and the kids always laugh when I tell them that. They're, they're taking the mickey out of you. Yeah, yeah okay. But, um, but so uh, in 2012, the term search for on porn websites shifted dramatically from um, terms that suggested that middle-aged men with a with a primary um, market for porn use. But in 2012, it switched to being adolescent uh, and adolescent based content. And the porn industry responded immediately to that by creating more and more content for adolescents. But in 2019, the most searched for term on porn websites was Fortnite, uh, which indicates that the age that were uh, accessing porn websites and looking for porn were um, the children who were playing Fortnite or young adults who were playing Fortnite. You're, you're, you seem like an enlightened teacher um, and somebody who is comfortable talking about what ordinarily would be an uncomfortable subject. So for a teacher of a certain, not even age or maybe sensibility, who would be mortified to even say yeah. the word porn in a class, 
um, what what to do about this parallel universe. I, I have sympathy for teachers because what where, where do they go with all of this? I mean, is it their job? They might say, look, it's the parents are putting these phones into their hands or letting them and so on. You know, it is a, deb- a kitchen debate, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a massive divide and it is a, it is a big problem because the students uh, know that we haven't experienced the same life that they are. We They know that we didn't have the internet. They're laughing almost at the ignorance, maybe. Yeah, well, possibly. But as soon as a, a adult who actually cares about them, that they know comes in and does have the courage and bravery, uh, the response that you get from them is so enthusiastic and genuine and grateful. Owen Cleary from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, it's that time of year when some people are dreaming of summer holidays. So travel writer Fionn Davenport was telling Claire about some of those good budget options to consider. So Fionn, bit of value around? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it, as you said, is inflation is, is a reality that we just can't ignore. Um, also as well as that the, the, the travel industry, so this is year four of a five-year recovery and sorry, including the pandemic. So last year there were deals, but there was a lot of vouchers from pre from the pandemic years that were being cashed in. So so the industry was still kind of running to stand still. Whereas this year is the first year where it's it really can start selling. When you add to everything that's been happening in the world, prices are inevitably mm. going to go up. Um Experts reckon that airfares are predicted to increase by 6% in business, 5.5% in economy, just across the board. Um, this is throughout Europe. Um, now, Michael O'Leary, you know, came out last year and he said, oh, the year of low flights is over, they're going to go up. Now, really what he's talking about is a relatively small increase, so around an average of 40 to 50 euro over the next five years. So it's not, yes, it's an increase, but it's not as dramatic as perhaps we may have feared. Um, but when you add fuel costs, labour shortages, inflation, cost of travel, everything is going to go up. Um, that said, so that's the bad news. The good news is, is that global tourism is going to go up by up to 30% in 2023. Uh, China's released all of its uh, restrictions, so they're going to start travelling. And the more demand, the lower the price. You know, so there's going to be, it's going to be more of a, of a regularising of prices okay. across the board. So you had, had a look to see yeah. where the best value is yeah. and you found a couple of options for I us did. that we might have considered. Okay, so Turkey, which is a, a now a perennial favourite with many Irish holidaymakers, particularly around the turquoise coast like Marmaris and Bodrum. Now, you know, the, the Turkish lira has collapsed dramatically in the last year. So that means that the euro to lira exchange rate is very, very good, favours us. So so whatever you're paying for your holiday um to go to Turkey, your your lira when you when or your euro is going to go a lot further than it did say in twenty nineteen. So Istanbul is obviously, you know, for me one of the great destinations in the world. It is absolutely one of the most beautiful and interesting and historic cities I've ever been to. But again, as I said, for if you're going on holidays, it's really that turquoise coast where it's lovely, it's resorts, it's guaranteed sunshine and it's cheap. Cheap, maybe not Costa del Sol cheap, but it's still very, very affordable. Okay, so Turkey's a good one. Albania. Yeah. Okay, so this is the one. So, <laughs> uh, travel journalists are funny. They always predict that this is the country that's going to be hot in this year. I've been saying this for a few years, and it, it not you have to yet. be right soon. You have to be right soon. Eventually, <laughs> yeah. Albania. So we all know Eastern Europe is cheap, but even by the standards of Eastern Europe, Albania is remarkably cheap, particularly compared to. 
just this, you know, Croatia, just to the north of it, because Croatia has become so popular and prices have gone up. Croatia is also in the euro. Albania is like, and also it's a really beautiful country. And like, I love the idea of that. Its main mountain range are called the Accursed Mountains. So like, you know, wild and there's great mountain hikes. There's also like, there's a very narrow strip of Riviera, but it's really, really beautiful. It's exactly what you'd find along the coastal resorts of Croatia. So it's no different, Mm -hmm. but less people and much, much cheaper. To give you an idea, a double room in a top end hotel, will cost you about 80 euro. What? Yeah. I mean, it really is for nothing. Um, Dinner in a top restaurant in Tirana in the capital between 15 and 30 euro. Um, Like you do a half day city tour, 20 quid. And so this is the kind of prices you're going to get. And uh, like, and it's also because Albania was once part of the Ottoman Empire. So it's got like that vestiges of Austro-Hungarian elegance. So like there's the block, which is one of the neighbourhoods in Tirana, which used to be only for the party elites, is now open. High-end cafes, really elegant and beautiful, but really, really cheap. So you get kind of that Eastern European elegance at a fraction of the cost. And is the tourism industry developed there? Not as not as fully as they would like it to be. So it's kind of an emerging destination. So obviously the tourism destination will respond to demand as demand goes up, so hotels get built. And also on Fionn's list was Lisbon. Traditionally, Western Europe's cheapest capital has always been Lisbon. Um, it also has seen in the last year, year and a half, a fall of about 7.9% in prices, which is due to the fall in demand because obviously you know, during the pandemic and in the in the immediate year afterwards, it was difficult to travel. They had restrictions. So they lost a huge amount of tourism, particularly to Lisbon. Um, now, inflation is running at around 9% now. So the prices are slowly starting to creep up again. But we're really talking from a relatively low base because, as I said, Lisbon is cheaper than any other Western European capital, both in terms of where to stay, um, both in terms of just a general meal and everyday costs. And so... That's uh, like really, it's just, I mean, there's nothing new in Lisbon. It's been popular with Irish travellers for quite a number of years, but I reinforce the value of it. You okay, know, so. so a value city break, mm. suggesting that Lisbon might be the place to go. Fionn Davenport from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.